This is a recording made at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title, The Pleroma. The subdivision, the Epistle to the Colossians. At the present moment, we are going through a series entitled Seven Steps to Glory. And this evening, our subject is to dwell upon the last but one rung of the ladder, seated together. It is our habit at this meeting, first of all, to read a portion of scripture together. If those of you who are taking this recording care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, and chapter 9, 1 to 14. Those of you who have followed this series up to the present moment will know that we have had before us the figure of a ladder <coughs> borrowed from the story in Genesis, <coughs> Jacob's ladder, and the fact that our Saviour endorsed it in John the first chapter saying, Hereafter ye shall see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We turn aside for a, a little while from the general teaching of the scriptures concerning the great fullness, the Pleroma, to consider this fact, that on the other side of the word Pleroma, there is the word of fullness, there will be the word emptiness. And the glory of Ephesians and Colossians is the fullness, but the equal glory of Philippians is the emptiness the voluntary self-emptying of the Son of God. You remember the words in Philippians, which are in our version read, he made himself of no reputation, literally, he emptied himself. And the emptying of himself brought him down step by step to the death of the cross, from heaven's glory to earth's deepest shame. And when he came into this world, he bore a title, an Old Testament title, Emmanuel, God with us. And then he himself quoted Isaiah 53 and said those words were about to be fulfilled in himself. They numbered him or me with the transgressors. God with us, numbered with the transgressors. And that's where we join him by reckoning. We have never been crucified, but we are reckoned to have been crucified with him. We have never died, but we are reckoned to have died with him. We have never been buried, but we are reckoned to be buried with him. Crucified, dead and buried, what's there left of us? What hope is there in us? What can we do? Nothing. That part's finished. And then I reminded you that quite a number of God's people, when they run over these together with, they say, we're crucified with him, we died with him, we're buried with him, we're raised with him, we're seated with him, we're glorified with him. And then this one out. And that one is quickened together with him. And that's now, now. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see? Don't let's miss that, miss that one out. That's the link between the three that are past and the three that are yet to come. Well then, last time we were looking at raised together. And this evening we're going to consider 
the words seated together. You'll find them in Ephesians chapter 2. says in verse 6, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Made us sit together. There is only one place where these words occur in the scriptures to sit together. I think we might see them and then we shall see the uniqueness of this particular passage. Luke 22 verse 55. Luke 22 verse 55. <clears throat> and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together Peter sat down among them. Well, that's a tragic statement, isn't it? They were all sitting down together, and he joined them. That's the only other occurrence of this compound verb. So we can leave it out. It doesn't, has got no doctrinal attachments to anybody else. This is another of the unique blessings that belong to the high calling of the church of the one body. No other company, of no other company is it written, that they are blessed with every blessing that is spiritual. No other company is it written that their blessings are to be enjoyed in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God. No other company were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And of no other company is it said that they are seated together with him. And as this is our priceless inheritance, let's spend a little time in endeavouring to understand something of its unique character. The word to sit and the word seat in the scriptures very, very seldom means sitting down to take a rest. It nearly always means occupying a seat of authority. I suppose you know why the church in a city where there is a bishop is called a cathedral. The word cathedral is cathedra, it means a chair. And a cathedral is the church where the bishop has his chair. And then we have the expression to speak ex cathedra. When he speaks ex cathedra, he speaks with authority. And so we brought it over into our little committee meetings and we have a chairman. Well, he might sit on a stool or he might stand up, but there he is. He speaks and you have to speak to the chair. You address the chair. So we've got it in our very makeup. The word chair, cathedral, and the word which is a verbal form of it, to sit, nearly always has some element of authority about it. Shall we examine that then? Matthew 23rd chapter, verse 2. Matthew 23, verse 2. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Well, uh, as far as we know, they hadn't got any chair that Moses sat in in Egypt or in the wilderness, but they occupied the position of authority, which they had succeeded to, rightly or wrongly, from Moses. I'll go on with the next verse because... It needs a little rectification. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. 
but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. There's a little bit of a tangle there, but it's one of those places where there's an alternative rendering which is equally true. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that you observe and do, but do not ye after the works. He's not telling them to do it. He said, I'm saying you do it. They're simply intimidating you. He said, it's no good listening to them, for they don't, their works and their teaching do not march together. But as our time is limited, I mustn't go into these byways too many times. Uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, 23, verse 2, this is giving you some samples of the way in which the word is used. Acts 23, verse 2. What is that? Did I? Oh, I mean the Acts of the Apostles. Yes, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but it, it doesn't look to me as though I've got the word to seat here. Is it? Yes, I've given that. Well, I've tangled that one up. And uh, this is all being recorded against me, so we'll be very quiet over that. All right, we'll pass on. I'll come back to that possibly in a minute. I shall find out. We'll go to the book of the Revelation, which gives us quite a series. The book of the Revelation, chapter 4. You'll find this is repeated, insisting upon it. Chapter 4, verse 2. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That's the point. One sat on the throne. Not sitting there for a rest, this is God himself. But he's occupying the throne. It's his authority. And verse 9. And when those living creatures gave glory and honour and thanks unto him that sat on the throne, that's his character. And chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Oh, you can go on and on. But we won't do that. We'll just go to the 20th chapter. Verse 4. And I saw thrones. And they sat upon them. These are the overcomers who live and reign with Christ. So we have the emphasis upon the being seated. Then you will find that it is, we'll come back to Matthew again, it is mentioned more than once as though it was a place of honour. We'll get to the Gospel according to Matthew again, verse 22 and verse uh, chapter 22, verse 44. You know, I think I'm beginning to want a holiday, friend. Um, 22, verse 44. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Quoting from the psalm. Sit there, that's a place of honour. The Lord said unto my Lord, and if you will notice in chapter 20, verse 21. 20 and verse 21. In verse 20, 
There came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons worshipping it, desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. You see, that's what she was after. And chapter 19, verse 28. Verse 27. Oh, verse 27 is not far enough back. There was a rich man who was told that if he would enter the kingdom of heaven, he should sell all he had and give it away. And he went away, naturally, very disturbed. Verse 26. Verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? You see, that's natural, isn't it? Of course, you wouldn't have said that possibly, but he did. See, Peter used to say a lot of things that other people were thinking, and he got blamed for it. So it's good to have somebody like that sometimes, a sort of a whipping boy for the rest of us. He said, Whoa, what about us, Lord? This, this rich man, he's evidently failed, but we've given up everything. And the Lord didn't rebuke him. He said, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, something to be coveted, like Zebedee's, the mother of Zebedee's children, or the reward promised to those who had followed the Lord in his um, trials. And then, of course, coming through the epistles, we'll look at the well-known verse, Colossians chapter 3, that we must take it as it's written. Here, where the apostle rises to the climax of his teaching in this epistle, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So we are directed to set our minds on things above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. So it looks, doesn't it, as though the seated Christ is not to be passed over quickly. So we said, oh, well, that's natural. It isn't. There's something about it which is rather peculiar and important. And so I'm going to ask you now to turn to the epistle to the Hebrews and notice the way in which it is emphasized in that one epistle. Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Contrast between the prophet and his Son. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins now that's the cross sat down not a word about the death not a word about the burial going straight away from cross to the throne it, it takes all the rest in it of course it couldn't be otherwise but you see there's a need in the Hebrews that the apostle shouldn't, shouldn't forget or let them forget that he was speaking about a seated Christ 
And that's the first. Now in um, verse 13 of the same chapter, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand? Well, there's a point for us, friend. You can answer that, can't you? At no time is there a suggestion in the book that God ever said to an angel, Sit on my right hand. And you know what I'm asking you to do, aren't you? I'm asking you to sit there and think to yourself, but that's what he said to me. If Ephesians 2 is written to you and about you, you have it written in the word of God that he has made us sit together in heavenly places, which is at the right hand of God. So we've got a position that no angel was never ever invited to. Doesn't that make you realise what grace has been manifested to, to us? But we'll see it perhaps more presently. Now will you turn to chapter 8 of this epistle to the Hebrews? We're just, a, just over halfway through, or about halfway through the epistle. So before he goes any further, he sums up his teaching. Now I've had people sum up my teaching, and then when I've read it, I haven't recognised recognized my own writing. Well, I didn't know I taught that. But it's good when you get a chance to sum it up yourself, isn't it? Well, Paul says, I'm going to sum it up for you. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I'm summing it up, he said, and the thing I want you to remember more than anything else is that he's a seated priest. Would you turn back to chapter 3? Verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, the apostle is the one coming down He's the sent one. And the high priest is the one going back. The seated one. And you make a complete circle. Consider him the apostle. Here he comes down. To the death of the cross. And then he ascends as the high priest. And sits down. Work finished. Evidence that it's finished. He would never have been permitted to sit at the right hand of a father if there had been the slightest hesitation, alteration, or negation of the work that he came to do. That's the guarantee to every one of us, a seated Christ. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, he's at it again, and this with great insistence this time, chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest... He's now speaking of the priests of Israel, of course. Every priest standing, daily, ministering and offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's the human priest. Now contrast. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's our blessed guarantee, friend. Never to be repeated. No more priests, no more sacrifices, the work done 
once and forever and accepted on our account. And then to get the last one, chapter 12, another point of view. There is such a thing as a race to be run after you're saved. There is such a thing as a crown to be won or lost. But you'll never lose your salvation, that's not in jeopardy. But after you're saved, you can enter into the lists for the prize of the high calling. Even Paul said, not as though I had already attained, I'm not sure about it. So if he was like that, we won't have in our hymn book, we're all going to wear a crown, we'll keep that quiet a bit till we touch the tape at the end. Now, chapter 12, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I've gone to that trouble and asked you to bear with me while we've insisted upon this preeminent position which is given to Christ seated at the right hand of God. Now let's try to think of the way in which it has a bearing upon our calling. And we can do that by comparing ourselves with others. Instead of having the chart before us this evening that we've had at other times, the ladder, I've put another one on. Some of you have seen it in days gone by from other angles, but it's going to demonstrate a feature, I think, that will justify its repetition this evening. We go back to the Old Testament, and we think of the people of Israel, don't think of them as they were in themselves, think of them as they were in the estimate and purpose of God, and as they will be, he called them a holy people. They were not holy in themselves. But the basic meaning of the word Kadosh and Kadish in the Old Testament translated holy, the basic meaning is separated from and separated to. Separated from association with others that may be iniquitous and separated to the service and the glory of God. He not only called them a holy people, but he separated one land from all the lands of the earth, and he called that a holy land. But again, I don't believe there's any difference in the soil of Palestine than there is in the soil of Syria or any of the other places. In fact, some of the others may be better. But the point is that that land was separated by God for his own purposes and so it was called a holy land. Well now you might have thought if you hadn't got the scriptures that with a people who were holy and with a land that was holy that's all that was necessary to be done. But you know it wasn't. You know it wasn't. Not only was there a holy land in which these people were to function not only were there a holy people but it was not possible for any one of that holy people to draw near to God in connection with the tabernacle services. You remember one or two of the heads of the tribes? They took the line and they argued. They said, 
all the people of Israel are holy. Numbers, the 16th chapter. All the people are holy. You're taking too much on yourself, Moses and Aaron. And Moses said, well, God must decide this. And you know what happened? When those men who dared to usurp the priesthood stood there with their senses, the earth opened and swallowed them up. That was God's answer. So, holiness is no trifle, friend. No trifle. Drawing near to God is no trifle. So here the holy people kept away from God, except through the mediation of others. Who were the others? Well, God separated one tribe from the twelve, and they were the Levites. But that wasn't enough, friends. Oh, no. A Levite. One of the, one section of the Levites looked after the furniture, another looked after the curtains and so on. But not one of them, not one of them could do the work of a priest. And so insistence is this that the law of Moses said that if any one of them exceeded the bounds of their limited service, they must be put to death. So here we have, let me go over it again. I'm doing it on purpose, of course. A holy land with a holy people in it and a holy tribe in it, and yet, not one of them going into the tabernacle. Not one of them. I'm wanting you to say to yourself, well, where am I coming in? Friends, you're right in. These people have got rings and rings and rings round them to keep them back. And you, you're told in this epistle to the Ephesians, that you were hopeless, and Christless, and godless, and far off, and you're made live by the blood of Christ, and there isn't a single ring round you. You've gone right straight in. What a position is indicated by these words, and made us sit together. For that's where Christ is. But we haven't done yet. From that holy tribe, Levi, was chosen a holy family, one family, the family of Aaron. And they were the priests who stood daily offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifice which never took away sin. So we're not there yet. No. No priest ever went into the holiest of all. No. They went daily into the tabernacle which was outside the holiest of all. The epistle to the Hebrews draws your attention that once a year, alone, the high priest went into the holiest of all. So sacred was that. And then the Jewish law, outside the law of Moses, the rabbinical law, added a little bit because of their fear. They said, what are we going to do supposing a high priest collapsed in and died in the holiest of all? But what are we going to do? How are we going to get at him? So they tied a rope round his ankle which was left outside. It was only one of those precautions that was indicating they knew that it was nobody's business to go within that final veil. So I'm emphasising this, friend, to think that God's chosen people of Israel had all that between them and a typical tabernacle. And you and I, who had no such claim upon God, we were never the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We were never in covenant with him. We were outsiders, completely outsiders. And we are told 
in Ephesians 1 that we are accepted in the Beloved. We're told in Ephesians 2 that we have boldness of access into his very presence. And here we have it in Colossians. He has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now there are quite a number of references to the words saints which have no reference to people. Will you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1. There's a prayer started in verse 15. And this is what he prays, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Well, you may say, well, that's right. God has an inheritance in the hearts of his people. We'll leave that for a moment and come to chapter 2. Verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. You say, well, that's all right. All the saints of God being together and at one. But that's what the authorised version has done because they, they didn't dare translate it c- truly. This doesn't say fellow citizens with the saints. Anybody who knows the Greek knows that it's the fellow citizens of the saints. But then that doesn't make sense. It only doesn't make sense because we are saying to ourselves, saints mean people. But in the New Testament, the word saint means an angel, it means an individual like you or me, or it means a holy place. Now, we don't use the word saint in that sense, but that's not the reason that God doesn't use it. Now, come back again then. Ephesians 1, verse 18. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in heaven's holiest of all. Because of the saints is the very word used in Hebrews 9 when it says that Christ has not entered into a tabernacle made by hands by man, but he then entered once into the holiest of all. The holiest. That's this word, plural, of the saints. And so in chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of heaven's holiest of all. And not only so, you're being built a temple. And that word temple which we get in the uh, next chapter, in the next verse. Oh, verse 1, verse 21. That is not the whole building of the temple. There are two words for temple. This one means the innermost shrine of the temple. It's selected. So again it's emphasizing that. And then when you come to Colossians chapter 1, Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet all sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance of heaven's holiest of all in the light. Not maybe in the light, in the light. So we have this insistence that we have a position which is here indicated in this glorious epistle to the Ephesians and Colossians, uniting us with Christ, 
in his sacrificial death, uniting us not because we can take any part in it, only that we may share in the consequences of it. So far as he himself is concerned, he was alone. We were only reckoned with him, but what a reckoning. Crucified with him, and then died with him, and then being buried with him, finished, done with. So that the apostle says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not I, he said, Christ liveth in me. You remember? Romans the 8th chapter, he shall quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. You remember? 2 Corinthians, where he says, oh, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Oh yes, quicken with him. And then I drew your attention to two words translated to be raised. And we differentiated between the two. We found that we are not raised together with him, we are roused, if you could have the change of word. We are wakened from sleep. There are two words. One means to wake up and the other means to stand up. And in the ordinary way, that's the way you get up in the morning, unless there's a terrible explosion or something. You're in the other bed before you know where you are. But normally, you wake up. Then you stand up. Well, we've been wakened. We're waiting for the standing up in the glory of the resurrection, but we've been wakened. And now we're directed away from earth to where Christ sits. And we're told that we are seated together in heavenly places. And we read over those words, heavenly places. They occur nowhere else in the whole wide range of scripture. Only in Ephesians. So, if we're ever going to find out anything about them, it's in those passages. Well, Ephesians 1 says, we are blessed with every blessing that is spiritual in heavenly places. And Ephesians 1 at the other end of the chapter says, that's where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power. And the third reference is, he has made us sit together in heavenly places. You can't miss it. Nothing lower than where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And angels are never mentioned. Principalities and powers are beneath his feet. This is a dizzy height, were it not by grace. We haven't merited it. This is just the working out of a purpose that was conceived and thought of before the overthrow of the world and put into operation when the people of Israel went out into their blindness and left a gap which God foreknew and he's filled it with this tremendous calling the church of the one body of the present parenthetical period. Now just a few words before I come to a finish. See the other lights going on now. You will find when it's speaking of the speaking of the tabernacle the Hebrews Christ is always said to be seated. Seated. But there are other passages where he's at the right hand, but it doesn't say he's seated. Shall we just look at um, the Acts of the Apostles, verse 7, uh, chapter 7. This is the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr for the Christian faith. 
It says in verse 58, And they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. For preceding that, we are told this is what he said. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. On is a bit archaic. To us it means to stand on it, which is not to standing at, or at the side of. Now, if you will turn back to the prophet Zechariah, you'll get another hint of what is in view. Prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. You know where that is? That's in the group of minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Just a few pages back from Matthew. Zechariah 3. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Standing at the right hand. There's a thought there of someone who was our antagonist. Standing at the right hand. As an adversary. If you'll turn back to Psalm 109, I believe there's another passage which would help us. Psalm 109 verse 6. Terrible long pause finding it, isn't it? Um, Set now a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. All this is dreadful, isn't it? But the point I'm trying to make is that when he's standing at the right hand, you're not in a temple, you're in a law court. And when Stephen said, I see the Son of Man standing, he was being condemned, Stephen was. He was being accused. And he looked to the man who was in the accuser's place. Now we're going to find that is true of ourselves and you anticipate me possibly by turning to Romans the 8th chapter. The Apostle now sums up his teaching at the end of Romans the 8th chapter Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here it comes. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, but does he stop there? No. Yea, rather, that he's risen again. Did he stop there? No. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also made his intercession for us. That's God's answer. The Christ standing at the right hand of God is in the accuser's place. So when I stand there, I shall look upon the face of him 
who died the just for the unjust to bring me to God. That's finished. And then, looking at it from the other point of view, he's seated at the right hand of God as the priest whose offering has been accepted and never to be repeated. Now Peter never knew that anyone was ever going to sit at the right hand of God where Christ sits. When you come to think what he said to Cornelius, he told Cornelius to his face that he would have called him common and unclean and had nothing to do with him had he not had that vision. He said, you know, it's a thing unlawful for a man that is a Jew to be seen in company with one like you. I wonder what would have happened to Peter if Paul had whispered to him, and do you know that Cornelius may, may possibly be invited to sit at the right hand of God? I think Peter would have just had a fit. It never could have entered into his makeup. Neither in ours. Neither in yours if God hadn't revealed it. Look at the opening. Look at the calling. Going right beyond all barriers, all veils, all middle walls, all gone. No rings round us. But the poor outside, Gentile, lost and undone, without fathers, without covenants, without promises, brought straight in. Not only given the lowest possible place in heaven's glory, but going up far above principality, power, throne, dominion, and every name that is named. And then said, come, don't stand there. Sit with my son at my right hand. I can understand that somebody once wrote to me and said I was a blasphemer. Very nice of him, wasn't it? I was a blasphemer, but I dare to say that part of my hope and my present anticipation was to be seated where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Well, I should have been if God hadn't written it. But I'm not going to be intimidated by names like that, friend. That makes very little difference. All to take God at his word. This is where you are potentially. Not actually yet, no, no, but potentially. But if that's your place, don't you see what an attraction it must be? So the apostle could say, set your affection on things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Let that be the goal. Let that be the incentive. Let that be the magnet. And all the other things will take their relative place. And to walk worthy of a calling instead of being a difficulty and a problem will be just like eating and sleeping and breathing. Oh, may God give us not to speak lightly and cheaply of these wonderful blessings, but to take him at his word. And if he's given us the highest possible, well, we're not worthy of the lowest and we might as well have the best that God has. And he comes out with both hands filled. He, he brings the oblation and the gift, not us. And he asks us to receive it as a free, unmerited favour. Now there's one more rung in this ladder, but that takes us beyond the present time. The last rung in the ladder is to be manifested with him in glory. That is our blessed hope. When that takes place, all the shock of nations and the groan of creation will begin to be hushed. When that takes place, it will be the moment when our Saviour stands up in glory, ready to descend, ready to take the kingdom, ready to rule with a rod of iron down here. But so far as we are concerned, we shall be there. It's almost too good to be true, 
But I think too good to be true is a good definition of the grace of God. So on that note shall we leave this wonderful study and may our hearts indeed burn within us. Not because I've tripped up over it somewhere and forgotten some verses, but may you look beyond the poor little human instrument to the one that has filled his vision and the one that fills this book with his glory. And may each and every one of us have that incentive to set our mind on things above where Christ did it. For that's where we have been reckoned to be potentially with him who died for us and rose again that he may be both Lord of dead and the living.